Well, I'm not much of a fan when it comes to the Hollywood stuff, uh, especially the things going on right now, like the Golden Globes and the Oscars. Uh, some of you may enjoy that, but uh, I'm not a particular fan of the self-congratulatory type of shows. But it's kind of hard to miss them right now, isn't it? It's all over the news, it's in the internet, it's in the, the magazines, and as we look at this, what we find is the media doesn't love to just cover the show, but they love to dish on everything related to the show, don't they? They want us to know what the stars are wearing, what they're going to eat, they give us the behind-the-scenes access to the party, so it's everywhere. And as we think about what that looks like in our culture, as we turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 7 today, what we're going to find is something very similar to this, because in it we're going to find a scene where there is a gathering that is taking place. And it's a gathering in the home of one of the religious leaders. And as you read through the Gospels, what you'll find is uh, when other meals like this are taking place, often you find there's a crowd that is there. Uh, these meals were not meant to be private affairs. These were a C and B scene type of event. These were big things in that day, whereas the, the well-known people of society gathered, as the religious elite and others came, they wanted the common person to come to the meal. Now, while they were invited to come, it was a kind of a tacit approval of, you just stand along the fringe, you line the walls, you stay out of the way. And uh, as these things would take place, they were often in an open area, maybe the, the courtyard or the patio of the home. And so people, as the passers-by walked by, they were invited to kind of look and see. But they knew that as common people, they were not to be a part of the event. They were supposed to just kind of blend into the woodwork in the background. And at these parties, as these A-list players who were the invited guests entered the home, there was a flurry of activity. The host of the home would, would meet the person at the door. They would greet them with a hug, with a kiss. They would anoint their head with some type of a fragrant oil. There was a servant that was there to wash the feet of the person before they came in and sat down at the party. And this is the background that we see here in Luke chapter 7 as we begin reading in verses 36 through 39. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, as you think about the scene here, I want to show you a picture from a meal I was at in Kazakhstan. And this is how they would eat in that day. When you read that they were reclining at the table, you literally reclined at the table. It was a mat that was on the floor, and you see your kind of sardine style here. You, uh, the, the person there is the mayor of the city, and if he were to put down his guitar and lay down, his head would be in the feet in front, and his feet would go behind my head. And so you kind of have this set up all around the table. So you see why it's important that your feet are washed. <laughs> now, as you think about that for a moment, I want to remind you that in Jesus' day, they walked around in open sandals on dirt streets, 
The sewers of the city were just ditches along the roadway. The animal droppings uh, were all over the road. So you can imagine how fragrant your feet were, right? Which again is why it's very important that your feet are washed when you're sitting down to eat a meal. And this is the picture here. Jesus said in verse 44, I entered your house, yet you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Now, what we see here is it wasn't just this woman who wasn't welcome in the home, is it? Jesus isn't welcome either. Jesus had been an invited guest, but he was not there as a guest of honor. Jesus was there as the main course of the meal. As you read through the stories that you find in the gospel, these gatherings were often a time where they were going to try to trap Jesus. They were going to try to catch him doing something wrong. And so they wanted to grill Jesus, but before they could get to him, in walks this woman. Now, notice we're not told her name. Some commentaries you read mistakenly say this is Mary. Because Mary was another woman at another meal who anointed the feet of Jesus. But there you'll notice that that context of the story was closer to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And there it is the home of Simon the leper, not Simon the Pharisee. Simon was a common name in this day. What we have here is another broken woman who has come to Christ. Her life is such a wreck that the way she's referred to in verse 37 is she is a sinner. Now, we're all sinners. But how would you like to go through life with that as your label? Roger the rebel, Susan the sinner. What if that were the title that everybody attached to your name? When they saw you, they referred to you as the sinner. As you think about her and the label attached to her, the way everybody looked at her, how much courage do you think it took for her to walk into the home of this religious leader? To enter in and to stand there on the fringe of the meal where everybody is looking at her and glaring at her. How dare you come into this home, you woman of ill repute? As I think about the courage this woman, uh, the courage it took for this woman to be there, it reminds me of the courage that it takes for some of you to be here even this morning. I mean, imagine what a visitor thought as they walked through the doors of our church this morning. They walked in and they're wondering, what is this place going to be like? Are they going to sing songs I know? Or am I dressed appropriately? Is somebody going to say hi to me? I mean, uh, think of it as those who have children. I mean, you know how hard it is for you as an adult to walk into a strange place. What if you were one of the parents dropping your kid off at a classroom and the kids there holding on to your leg and crying, I don't want to go in, I don't recognize anyone, and, and these kids are sent into a strange classroom, or if you're in the student ministry, you're walking into a room where, you know, the cliques are already formed and, and you're wondering, you know, is my school loyalty going to be uh, the out group and this, this youth group or, or the college ministry, the same thing. And so the courage it takes for a stranger to walk in to this, this setting here at Wayside. Put yourself in the, the place of others who maybe are wondering, well, are the people there going to look like me? Racially, economically, is this a place I'm going to fit? You know, it's a hard place to come even for those of you who have been at Wayside for a long, long time. 
One of the things I often hear from people who have been a part of Wayside for many years when they've suffered a loss in their family, either through death or divorce, is they say, Roger, I don't know if I fit here anymore because we were always a couple and now I walk in and I'm by myself. And my friends, they love me, but I, I, I feel like the third wheel sometimes because I'm here alone now. Think of the courage that it takes for people to be here. Still others are just like this woman. They've made a mistake. And they're wondering, how is everybody looking at me? Do they see me as the sinner? Do they see me as a person who is to be ostracized and put out on the edge of the group? As we think about these different kinds of people that are here this morning, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to make them feel welcome at Wayside? What are you doing to help somebody who walks through the doors of this church feel welcome? You know, as Jesus is talking to the Pharisee here, he's not asking for anything extraordinary. He says, let's just start with a few basic courtesies. He said, I walked in the door and you didn't even give me a kiss. Now, in our culture, that's the same as saying, you didn't shake my hand. I walked in and, and you didn't even welcome me. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Roger, we had that greeting time here in the service and John said, make sure you hit all four points. And I shook four people's hands. I did what I was... But was it a quick hit and run? Hello? Hi? Good to see you. And as soon as the person wanted to say something to you, you had already turned your back on them. When you meet somebody new, do you really get to know them? Do you ask them, what's your name? How long have you been here at Wayside? Tell me a little bit about your story. Do we really get to know people? Or is it just kind of a momentary uh, passing where when we say, hi, how are you doing? And they start to tell us, we go, I really didn't mean it. I just, you know, it's just what we say. When we meet new people, it's not just during the greeting time. You know, it should start out in the parking lot. If you ride the shuttle bus over, when you get on the bus, just say to the person, hi, how are you doing? I haven't met you before. Tell me a little bit about yourself. As you're walking across the parking lot and you see somebody else walking, kind of go over to them and start talking to them as you walk in. When you're checking your kids in at the children's area, turn and talk to the families and say, oh, I see you've got kids similar to mine. Get to know them a little. Or if you see them out in the parking lot with a bunch of little kids, say, are you new here? Do you know where to check your kids in? And if they say, no, I really don't, don't just say, well, you know, it's that building over there. Say, let me, let me take you over there and walk them into the children's area. If they have a, a student, you know, instead of saying, you know, it's up there on the second floor, take them up to the junior high room, take them to the high school room. Ask them, are you a part of an adult Bible fellowship? You know, we've got a great group. We'd love for you to come with us and, and be in our class. Do we take that extra step of really getting to know somebody and helping them to feel welcome? As we look at the home of Simon, it, it wasn't a place where this woman or Jesus were welcome. Jesus says, Simon, you, you wouldn't wash my feet, but she washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. You, you didn't kiss me on the cheek, but she's not stopped kissing my feet. You, you wouldn't put common olive oil on my head, but she's poured out expensive perfume on my feet. Jesus says, you know, Simon, the table looks pretty. Everyone's wearing their best clothes. The meal was wonderful. It's a great show, but you failed to show me love. 
You know, as you think about this, it's, are, are we a little bit like Simon sometimes? Do we major on all the details? Are we more concerned about the show and we forget to really show love? And I'm not just talking about here at Wayside. Think about your own home, the neighborhood in which you live, the people you work with, those you see at school. Are we those who are good at majoring on the minor details and missing the major call of Christ to show his love to others who are around us? Unfortunately, there was no love for this woman. As she walked into the home of the religious leaders, as she stood there with every eye glaring at her, as they were whispering and pointing and saying, how dare she come in here? Look at how she responds. Verse 38 tells us she bows her head in shame. And she begins to cry. It says, and standing there behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair and of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. You know, what we're reading here, I, I think what happens is she walks in, she kind of jostles over to the corner. Everybody's, ooh, it's her, you know, don't touch her. And they, they move away from her. And people didn't really want to be around Jesus anyway, so that's the open spot. And she's standing there, and as he's reclining there, his feet are right there. And as she bows her head in shame, just doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody, the tears begin to fall. And, and they fall on his feet. And as she's standing there and her eyes are, are watering and the tears are dropping, she suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, I'm making, I'm making his feet wet. Now, she, she wants to dry them and she doesn't dare reach over and take one of the nice napkins off the table and ruin the place setting. So what does she do? She gets down on the ground and she doesn't have anything, so she has her hair down. Now, the fact that her hair was down means she was a prostitute. Women in that day wore their hair up or covered, and so the fact she's walking around with her hair down, everybody says she's a harlot. And, and just in a moment of, what do I do? She just instinctively starts to dry his feet with her hair, these muddy, smelly feet with all the animal and dirt and everything on it. And as she's doing this and as she's continuing to cry, suddenly she realizes, I'm touching the feet of Jesus. And as she's holding the feet of Jesus in her hands, I, I wonder if the words of Isaiah 52, 7 went through her mind. Isaiah 52, 7 tells us how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And here's this woman holding the feet of God. And as the tears are flowing and as she realizes who it is that she's holding the feet of the one who will forgive her of her sins, she forgets everybody else and she begins to worship God. Now, as she begins kissing his feet, some people uh, mistakenly make this something erotic. Here's a prostitute kissing the feet of Jesus and what's going on here? Friends, there's nothing erotic going on here. The tears are falling, her hair's a muddy mess, snot is coming out of her nose as she's weeping uncontrollably, and she's kissing his feet in utter abandon. She's lost in worship. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a service where you're, you're so focused on God, you say, you know, I forget everybody around me. I'm not worried that I'm singing off key. I'm not worried that, you know, if I want to raise a hand or if I want to respond in some other way, or do we always look around and say, what, what should I be doing? What's everybody else doing? 
Here was a woman who was lost in worship of her God. She surrendered her pride. She wasn't worried about it. And then she gives him a gift. Her, her worship includes giving a gift. She has a vial of perfume that is around her neck. Women in that day would, would wear this around their neck. It was a way to smell good, and it was, it was probably the most valuable thing they would ever own. And she's there, and she has this perfume around her neck. Now, this isn't the cheap stuff, man. You know how you go to the cosmetic counter? And there's a kind of that big bottle of uh, toilet water, or I don't know if I'm quite, you know, I'm not a big perfume guy either. Sorry, ladies. I know there's that parfum, you know, that's the, the expensive stuff, right? You, you look at the big bottle, and then there's that little thing, and you're going, that's like 10 times the price, you know. The woman's perfume is in an alabaster vial. This is an expensive container, so you know there's something expensive in it. And the Greek word used here is muron. It literally means an ointment. This isn't a liquid form. This is, like I said, this is the, the high dollar stuff. And as she's there, uh, she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus. You know, when we worship God, it's not just the words we sing. Worship is not just what takes place for an hour or so on Sunday. Worship needs to be what is happening seven days a week in our homes. Worship needs to be what we're doing in our private times of prayer, in the songs that we sing in our car, in the, in the times that we're with Christ. Worship is, is our whole life as we serve Him and as we serve others. The Bible tells us when we come to God with our offerings, we are to be cheerful givers. The Greek word that is used here literally means to give with hilarity and utter abandonment. And again, I'm not just limiting this to the offering time where you put money in the offering plate. This is to be our whole lives that we put in the plate, where we worship God freely with all that we are, all that we say, all that we do. And here was a woman that was doing that. As she pours out this expensive perfume, this offering to Jesus, think of the sweet smell that suddenly filled the room. It's been said that forgiveness is the fragrance of a violet that it leaves on the heel of the one who crushes it. Forgiveness is the fragrance of the flower that is left on the heel of the foot that crushes it. And here is a woman who has been crushed her whole life. Here is a woman that when men look at her, they see her as somebody to be used and abused. Somebody to satisfy a selfish passing pleasure as a prostitute. And suddenly she's dealing with a man, more than a man. This is God himself in the flesh. And as she holds the heel of the one, the book of Genesis tells us that the Son of God would be the one whose heel would crush the serpent. And she's holding the heel of the one who would give her forgiveness by going to the cross as a nail would be driven through those feet that she was holding as he would give his life to die, to pay the penalty of death for her sins, my sins, and yours. As you look at the parable, it takes place contextually around Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30. As Jesus was teaching there, he, he said to the crowd, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you, sh you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Here was a woman who was trapped under the load of her sin. Here was a woman who was labeled by society as a sinner. And what Christ said is, come to me and you will find rest. 
as she sheds these grateful tears of repentance. Uh, imagine if one of them had landed on any of the religious leaders while she was standing there. What do you think would have happened if one of her tears had fallen on their foot? They probably would have screamed out, jerked their foot back like it was acid dropping on them. What are you doing, woman? You harlot, get away from me. That's what they wanted to say. We see that's what Simon was thinking. Look at, look at the, while the words didn't come out of his mouth, look at what's running through his mind in verse 39. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. You know, Simon's saying, if, if Jesus is all that people say, this great prophet, the, the Messiah was said to be a prophet, if Jesus is really him, that he would know. I mean, anybody, not even a prophet, can just look at this woman and see who she is. She's a prostitute. She's a sinner. How can Jesus let, her let, let this woman touch him? Jesus knew who this woman was. And he also knew what was running through Simon's mind because he was a prophet. He was much more than that. He is God. I wonder if you've ever met anybody like Simon. You know, I picture Simon and all his buddies, all the religious leaders, kind of being like a little group of little boys on a playground. You know, running around in their little group about girls and cooties, you know. And, and they're going circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I've got my cootie shot. Run! It's a girl, right? Are, are we like that? Do we say, look, it's a sinner, run. Don't let him, don't let her touch us. Don't let him get around us because they're going to contaminate us. Is that what we do? You know, the lepers of old had to walk the streets shouting out, unclean, unclean. Everybody knew they were contaminated. Everybody would run. The doors would slam shut. The children were pulled inside. Everybody would get away. They were on the fringe of society. They were to stay away from everybody. And we have people in our day that feel just like them. They walk around feeling unclean. And they think that's what Christians do, that they sound the alarm. There's a sinner in our midst. Run away. Don't let them in here. Have we forgotten that we too are sinners? Have we forgotten that we are the unclean? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not saying that we should not confront sin. We should. We should hold a light up to sin. But as we do, we've seen throughout numerous passages of scriptures in the past that we are to love the sinner and hate the sin, that we are to speak the truth, but to do it in love. When we confront a sin, when we confront somebody with something going on in their life, we come as a sinner ourselves. Galatians tells us, you who are spiritual, restore one in a spirit of gentleness. And as we come, we need to come as those who are forgiven sinners ourselves, that have found the grace of God, and we need to say to them, I want you to find God's grace as well. I want you to have God's best in your life, to turn from your sin and to turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead of running away, we should be looking for ways to help bring them to God. We need to begin by praying for them, to pray that their hearts would be open. Really, we probably need to start by praying for our own hearts first, right? That we would be willing to reach out to those who are unlovable, those who need to know God. 
An assignment that I want to give to you is you can take your iPhone, your iPad, your smart tablet, an index card, whatever it is that you keep notes on, if you have a prayer journal or anything, and I want you to make a most wanted list. And I'm going to limit it to three. You can say, well, there's 20 people that I know who need the Lord. Yeah, great. But you're probably not going to pray consistently for 20 people. But can you think of the faces of three people you know who don't know the Lord? And what I want you to do is I want you to make a list and I want you to take the names of those faces you're thinking and I want you to actually put them down on paper or in your iPad or your PDA, whatever it is that you see. And for the next three months leading up to Easter, I want you to begin praying for these three people for the next three months. That God would open their heart. That they would be willing to come with you maybe to a service to the Good Friday service, to the Easter service, to one of the services between. You don't have to wait three months to invite somebody. And it's not just bringing them to church, that you would begin to reach out to them, a coworker, somebody you see at school, and begin to really show the love of God to these individuals. So make your most wanted list and put three names on it. And begin to pray over the next three months at least. Now, you don't have to stop there, but let's start there. Pray for three people for three months that they would be open to hearing the good news. And pray for yourself as well that God would give you the courage to share the gospel with them. Pray that God would give you the heart you need to demonstrate love to those who really need to know his love. In the next verse, we see that Jesus, Simon, in the next verse, Jesus wanted Simon to understand that he too needed to accept the gift of God's grace. In verse 40, it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. Can you imagine Simon's fake smile? Oh boy, a word from the Lord, from this fake prophet who can't even see there's a prostitute touching him. Say it, teacher. And Jesus says in verses 41 through 44, there was a certain money lender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do, do you see this woman? <laughs> Now, there's the understatement of the night, right? He hasn't stopped looking at her since she walked in. And he says, Simon, do, do you see this woman? And he says, no, no, Simon, I want you to really see this woman. I want you to see her for who she is. A person created in the image of God. A person of great value and worth that God thought so much about that he was willing to leave heaven to come to earth, to ultimately go to the cross to take her place, to pay the penalty of death that she owed, and by the way, Simon, that you owe as well. Do you notice it in the parable? He says they both owed a debt. And he said, do you see this woman? Like 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us God sees us. It says God doesn't look at the externals, but he sees the heart. And he says, Simon, God sees a woman here who is a sinner, and I know that. 
But I also know in her heart that she is turning from her sin into me. That she wants forgiveness for the mistakes she's made. And Simon, you need that as well. A denarius, as you'll recall, a denarii was the typical pay for a day's worth of work. One owes 50 days worth of work, the other 500, 10 times as much. Almost two years worth of debt is what this woman owes in the story. She owes the largest amount, but Simon owed a debt too. We all do. Because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, every one of us. And Romans 6.23 goes on to tell us what our debt is. It says, for the wages of sin is death. We owe a penalty we cannot pay. Death is the eternal separation from God that we will face when our physical life is over on this earth. If we are a sinner and we have not turned to Jesus to be our Savior. The good news is Romans 6.23 goes on to tell us, the wages of sin is death, but... But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God paid the penalty of death for me, for you, for Simon, and this woman. We're all sinners. Some are just bigger than others. And because we are all sinners, we have a big problem. We owe that penalty of debt. But God in His grace came to take our place for those who will turn to Him. Those who will turn from their sin and to Jesus and say, I need you. I accept your death in my place. I believe you died, you were buried, and you rose from the dead three days later to show that you conquered sin and death. As we read about this woman, don't make the mistake of thinking she was saved by what she did. Her acts are those of worship, a grateful response for the forgiveness she had received. Jesus says in Luke 7, 47, For this reason... For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When we read for this reason, the Greek word hadi is used here. It's, it, it, it speaks of a result clause. What it means is that this is a result clause, meaning she did her works as a result of her salvation. It's not a causal clause which says that she was saved because of her works. Jesus says her sins were forgiven. She recognized that and she responded in grateful thanks. The woman never spoke a word in our story, but her actions spoke loudly. Simon's actions spoke loudly as well, didn't they? Jesus said, whoever is forgiven much loves much. Whoever is forgiven little loves little. Simon showed no love to this woman or to Jesus. Simon was one who hadn't even received forgiveness. He was one who was not thankful to God for what he had received. He didn't think he needed it. The story is told of King Frederick II. He was the 18th century king of Prussia. And he was walking through a prison in Berlin one day, and as he was going through the, the cell blocks, all the prisoners were running up to the bars of their cells, and they were screaming, Your Majesty, Your Majesty, I'm innocent! 
I've been imprisoned unfairly, cell block after cell block. All the prisoners are screaming and clamoring. And the king is walking through with this contingent of guards. And he comes to this, this one cell block. And there's all these guys at the cells screaming, I'm innocent, your majesty. But the king notices there's one man sitting over in the far corner of this cell, just with his back to the king, looking at the wall. And the king stops everything and he says, who is that man over there? And he says, guards, go get that prisoner. So they push aside all the other prisoners. They call this man over and said, the king wants to speak to you. So he comes over and he's, he's standing there, his head hung low. And, and the king says, uh, I assume that you're, you're innocent as well. Everybody in here seems to be innocent. But you're not, you're not telling me of your innocence. And, and the prisoner says, well, that, because your majesty, I'm guilty. He says, what do you mean you're guilty? He said, well, I committed armed robbery. And he said, that's why you're here? He said, yes, your majesty. I deserve my penalty. I belong here. The king turns to the guards and he said, release this man at once. I don't want this innocent man corrupt, I mean this guilty man corrupting all these other innocent prisoners. <laughs> it's a true story of this prisoner who was set free because he said to the king, I am guilty and I deserve my punishment. And friends, the Bible tells us when we come to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we say to him, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I have made mistakes in my life. I've fallen short of perfection. God, I know what I deserve, the penalty of death. But God, I am confessing my sin. And I thank you that your word tells me you came and took my place. You paid my penalty. And I want that. I want your gift of grace. I want your forgiveness. The woman here found forgiveness because she came to Christ as a sinner. And the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, we will be forgiven. Verses 48 through 49 tell us, And Jesus said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Now, suddenly the focus is back off the woman and back on Jesus, right? Earlier in Luke 5, 21, there had been a similar situation to this. There it says, Jesus had forgiven someone's sins, and we read, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Imagine that as you're sitting here right now, your neighbor next to you reaches over, and they slap you. They hit you so hard you fall on the floor and you're sitting there on the floor and I see this happen. Now I walk down and I walk over and I say, look, I just saw what happened. This person hit you and, 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 and you're here. And I turn to the one who hit you and I said, I forgive you. Now you're laying on the floor with a welt starting to form and you're going, what are you doing? I'm the one who got hurt. How can you forgive him or her? You see, for forgiveness to mean anything, it has to come from the one who was offended, Right? And what the Pharisees are saying is, how dare this guy forgive sins? God is the one who has to forgive sins because God is the one who is offended. And you know what? God was the one forgiving sins because Jesus was and is God. And he says to this woman, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. And he says to you and me today, our sins, which are many, are forgiven if we will turn to Christ and confess them. You see, we have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's called the father of lies. 
And what the devil wants us to believe is God doesn't want anything to do with us. Maybe you walked in here this morning, you've made such a mess of your life, you're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here in church. I'm ashamed to even look up and see the cross or be around all these, these church-going people because my life is such a mess. And that's what Satan's whispering to us, right? God doesn't want you here. He can't use you. Who do you think you're fooling? You're a hypocrite. And what we need to say to our enemy is what God said in his word. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is the one who is offended. God is the one who can give forgiveness. And he says, when you were far from me, when you were a sinner, when you were in rebellion, when you were running, when you were such a mess that nobody wanted you around, I was willing to leave heaven, to come to earth, to go to the cross and die for you. And I offer you that gift of forgiveness. If you will just turn to me and you will receive my great gift to you. The only way we stay a prisoner to our sins is when we do not confess them. There was a book written called Will Daylight Come? And in it, Richard Hoffler tells the story of a little boy. And he was out visiting his grandparents. And they lived out on a farm, and, and the grandparents gave the little boy a slingshot. It's kind of what grandparents do, right? They've gotten past that stage, so they said, here, son, here's a slingshot. Now, they said, what we want you to do is not use it around the house. You might break a window. You might hurt somebody. You go out there in the backwoods, and you shoot all you want. You go practice out there, but you're not allowed to use it around the house. So the little boy, he goes out in the woods, and all day long, he's shooting and shooting. He can't hit anything he's shooting at. He tucks his slingshot in his back pocket, and he comes walking back into the farmyard. And as he's walking in, he sees his grandmother's pet duck waddling across the yard. Now, just on a whim, he reaches in his back pocket, pulls this out, a little rock in his pocket, and he aims at the duck, figuring, I'm not even going to come close, and he lets it go, and he hits the duck, and he kills it. Now, the little boy panics, because he knew he wasn't supposed to be using this in the farmyard, and this is grandma's pet duck. So he runs over, he tries to revive it, and this duck is dead. So he picks it up, and in a panic, he goes over to this wood pile, and he stuffs it in there, and he's piling logs on it. And as he turns around, he's face-to-face -face with his sister, Sally. Now, Sally's just standing there looking at her brother. Doesn't say a word. Turns around and walks away. Well, later in the day, uh, little boy Johnny's in the house, and... Um, it's lunchtime, and after it's over, the grandmother says, Sally, come on, let's go wash the dishes. And she said, oh, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen. <laughs> and she looks at Johnny before he can say a word, and she says in a whisper, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny goes to do the dishes. Well, later, Grandpa says, hey, it's time to go fishing. Let's go fish. And Grandma says, not so fast. I need, I need Sally to stay and help me with the supper. And she says, oh, it's all taken care of, Grandma. Johnny said he wanted to help with supper. And she turned and she whispered to him, remember the duck. So Johnny stayed behind and helped with supper, and Sally went fishing. 
Well, this happened day after day while they were there. And finally, Johnny couldn't stand it anymore. He was doing his chores and her chores. And, and he finally said, I, I can't stand it anymore. He went to his grandmother and he said, Grandma, I have to tell you, I, I, I disobeyed. I used a slingshot and I killed your pet duck and I hid it in the wood pile. I, Grandma, I'm sorry. And with a big smile, she hugged him and she said, Johnny, I was standing at the kitchen window and I saw the whole thing. And she said, Johnny, I love you. And I forgave you. I was just waiting for you to come and tell me. And I was wondering how long you were going to let Sally make you a slave to your sin. <laughs> is there anyone here today that is like that? Are you letting Satan make you a slave to your sins? Friends, God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He came to take your place and mine. He died to set us free from our sins if we will turn to him and confess our sins. We have an enemy who's called the accuser of the brethren. He stands in heaven and he's telling God our sins. You can read and it tells us that when this is happening, Jesus Christ is called our advocate, a word that literally means our defense attorney. And as the accuser is there saying, did you see what Roger did this week? Did you see what so-and-so did this week? It says Jesus is standing there too. And he says, yeah, Roger's guilty. And then he shows his palms where the nails were driven through, and he says, I paid the penalty. I set Roger free. I set you free as well, if you belong to him. As we just read in Romans 5, 8, when we were far from God, God left his place in heaven to take our place on the cross. If your life today is a mess, if it's nothing but a bunch of broken pieces, if you will come to Jesus Christ, he offers you the peace of God that passes all understanding. I want you to notice that in this passage, Jesus didn't leave the woman groveling at his feet. But he sent her away in peace, telling her she is free from the burden of her past sin. And God offers you the same forgiveness today if you will turn to him. Carl Menninger was a famous psychiatrist of the past. And he was, he was asked about the people in the mental hospital that he oversaw. And he said, if I could convince the people in this mental hospital that they are forgiven of their past mistakes and sins, 75% of them would walk out of here tomorrow. Friends, I want you to know that God offers you his peace for the pieces in your life that he offers you the opportunity to be forgiven, to be set free from the past mistakes, if you will turn to Jesus. Is there anyone here today who needs to be set free? The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all unrighteousness. There is nothing you have done that is too big that God's death on the cross cannot wash away through his shed blood. As we close today, I want you to think about your life, and I want you to talk to God. I want you to think if there's anything in your life that you walked in here with today that you've been holding on to, that you've been a prisoner to in your past. And I want you to confess that sin to God. It may be somebody is here today and for the very first time you're saying to God, God, I need to come to you. I need to accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. 
Today, I want to be a part of the family of God. I want to find your forgiveness. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Just say to God, I'm a sinner. And I need you. Jesus, will you help me turn around and change the way I'm living? I want to come to you, Christ, today. I want to be a part of the family of God, and you will be saved. For those of us who have come to faith in the past, we've all made mistakes since coming to Christ. And what God says to us is, don't continue to be a prisoner to those mistakes. Say to God, I am a sinner. This is what I've done. And God, I need your forgiveness. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Take a moment now to talk to God. And I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your great love. Love that was demonstrated in that you were willing to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were far from you, while we were in rebellion and running, you came to take our place. And today, God, we want to turn around and we want to run to you, not from you. We thank you that you are waiting with open arms, not because they're still nailed to the cross, but arms that are open wide in love, saying, I'm ready to receive you and forgive you. We thank you, Father, for those who have talked to you this morning to say they want to come home, that they've come to faith maybe for the first time. For others here, Lord, who have confessed sins that they've been a prisoner to, we thank you that you offer full and complete forgiveness and you don't want us groveling at your feet, but you want us to know that we've been forgiven and to walk out of here with our heads held high, to know that we are a son or a daughter of the King, loved and forgiven and restored. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of all of our sins, not just the sins of commission, but even those of omission. As there are times we have not loved as we should, there are times we've been like Simon the Pharisee, where we've not extended the courtesies, shown love to others that need it. Would you help us, Lord, as we walk out of here to be those who would demonstrate your love to those that we see not just here in the seat next to us at church, but the ones who live on the street where we do, the ones that are in the classrooms at school where we work, the military bases where we are. Father, would you take and use us as you send us out of here to be those who have received your great love, and now may we be those who show your great love to others. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our prayer leaders at the front, if there's something that you need somebody to pray with you about, we'd love to do so. I'll be here as well. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.